The Pat Kenny Show on News Talk with Matter Private Network. During current restrictions, don't ignore your health concerns. Our expert team is ready to help. Now, every cloud has a silver lining, and it turns out the COVID cloud has lots of such linings. Uh, Luke O'Neill, Professor of Biochemistry at Trinity College in Dublin, uh, joins us. Luke, good morning. Good morning, Pat. Now, you've been looking at the dividend to medical science of, uh, I suppose, the rush to, to combat COVID-19. So talk me through some of the terrific developments. That's right, yeah. I mean, it's amazing in some ways. Remember, all this science has happened in the past two years. All these discoveries have been made about the immune system and vaccines and all sorts which we didn't know before, you know. And now in medicine, we're saying this could give rise to lots of progress in many different ways. It's a bit like the, uh, the moonshot gave rise to things, didn't it? You know, And the first one, most of all, and his vaccines, obviously, because these wonderful, fantastically new, of course, still new vaccines are so powerful. And they're called genetic vaccines. They've now been named that you're using the gene you see as opposed to the protein or the or the whole virus. And the RNA vaccines are genetic in, in nature, you know. And they've proven themselves in, in spades, basically, haven't they, with this massive effectiveness. So now, as we speak, Pat, there's vaccine trials running for HIV, malaria, and several types of cancer using that technology, you see. Brilliant. So again, I'm especially optimistic this morning because some of the cancer ones are looking very promising. Now this is early days of course. The, the dream was always to vaccinate against cancer so the immune system would kill the tumour you know and there was some evidence that might work in the past but now using this RNA technology that dream is getting more and more of a reality. So, so in some ways we're looking at a very bright future for, for lots of different diseases based on what was discovered through COVID. So that's uh, the first great development, uh, something that was long coming uh, because they were experimenting on this, uh, you were telling me, some 30 years ago. But now they have refined it and they yeah. know how to do it. Uh, so the next thing, wearable tech. Lots of people wearing Fitbits and stuff like that. How does that play into disease diagnosis? Yeah, it was obvious in a way because we are all measuring our sleep patterns, aren't we, in various things, using our, our smartphones and so on, our watches and things like that. They've been deployed to study COVID a lot. And, and so, for example, they, they gave smartwatches to people with COVID and monitored symptoms, I've often got loads of data from that, and it's kind of it's proven itself as a diagnostic indicator. First of all, so in other words, you may spot disease early using this technology, and th- this idea had been around before, of course. But yet again, because of COVID, everything got ramped up in this regard, you know. And there's several studies now showing you can use smart watches. There's, there's things called smart rings. You put a ring in your finger, that detects your pulse rate. It can detect your temperature. All these various things can be measured, and now they've improved basically the way to do that, and the prediction there is we'd all be wearing these devices to, to measure our health in, in a more effective way. As I say, it was, it was happening before, as you may remember, people had this anyway, you know. But because of COVID, that technology has improved and gone fast as well. And so, so wearable technology could become a key feature for all our lives and you'll spot disease early. And as you know, Pat, if, if you can spot any disease quickly, you can intervene quickly then, you know. And that's always been a dream for medicine anyway, the diagnostic thing. So, yeah. so again, wearable tech has come up usually as well in the past two years. Yeah, you wonder though will people be objecting that Big Brother is watching them well, Big yeah. Brother knows my temperature Big Brother knows my pulse that's the trouble yeah this data has to be private another one good one Pat was long COVID can be measured with this tech they reckon now as well there's a study showing that if you know if, if you get long COVID because of fatigue your, your smartphone goes take a rest and that can relieve some of the symptoms so again it might be a way to manage symptoms in long COVID and of course as you know Pat long COVID is one of our concerns now now that we're passing out of the, the pandemic phase so if you get if if you could limit the symptoms of long COVID using wearable tech, that could be another useful add-on. Now, there's a new way to discover drugs. Um, 
What is that? There is, yeah. And this is another really good example of things speeding up because of COVID in a way. And what it's all about is if you have a disease, it's often caused by a broken protein in your body of some kind. So the protein starts to, to, to malfunction, as it were. And a good example is in breast cancer, the BRCA protein is defective in certain types of breast cancer. And then they'd fire drugs at BRCA. That, that was known before COVID, of course. But they've realised that in the case of BRCA, it interacts with probably 30, 40 different proteins. It's a network of proteins. And so the question is, can you bring the network down was the idea before. Now, COVID is the same. They've discovered that the COVID proteins interact with networks. And using that information, then you can design drugs to bring the whole network down to have a very efficacious drug. And there's a couple of drugs in, in phase three trials for COVID that target the network that's happened, the protein network, as it were, is being targeted. You know? Now, what that means is many diseases involve networks of proteins that are dysfunctional. And a drug that targets the network might be more effective then than a drug that targets one component. So if you like, it's a new way to discover drugs based on, again, what we learned from COVID the idea there. Now, uh, the scientists have found 69 compounds that influence the proteins in the coronavirus network and... 29 of them already have FDA approval for other things. That's exactly right. So there was drugs already in humans that could treat the, some proteins in the network for COVID that were already safe, you see. And they get redeployed now into the COVID situation. So again, it just shows you that wouldn't have been discovered if the network wasn't discovered, if you know what I mean. So the key thing there was network discovery first, and then a drug that's on the shelf can now be redeployed is the idea. Yeah, there's one called Aplidin, uh, currently being used to treat cancer. Yeah, and it that's turns right. out it's far better than remdesivir. Yeah, it was 27 times more effective than remdesivir in a test tube, you know, which is a great effect, really. So uh, that that's brilliant. So new ways of uh, actually developing or reapplying existing drugs to the treatment of uh, various illnesses. I mean, we're talking about COVID-19, but any particular thing, you map that uh, the extensive protein network yeah. and off you go. <clears throat> exactly. You bring the whole network down basically and that's a more effective way to treat diseases. Now again, cancer is a great example but that. That's often networks of proteins all malfunctioning together as opposed to a single protein. So therefore the goal is to bring the network down and have an effect. So again, we might see progress in cancer uh, therapies as well through, through the work that came out of COVID. Now we've often heard of clinical trials and uh, we're told that this drug X or that drug Y are very expensive because they've had to conduct clinical trials. They've got to persuade uh, the FDA in the United States and the European Medicines Agency that these drugs are safe to be deployed in humans uh, and they have to you know, recruit loads and loads of people, do the tests and all the rest. There is a smarter way. There is. Now, Now again, this is this may be the biggest thing, but after the vaccines, actually, to be honest, a better way to do clinical trials. So uh, with, with COVID, there was a thing called the recovery trial in the UK. They tested four different drugs at the same time against COVID using groups of patients, right? And one of them worked, dexamethasone, you might remember, that's a steroid that was proven to work from that trial. And, and it was a, they're called large, simple trials. All you're measuring is, say, survival, something quite straightforward, you know. In other words, they simplified the whole trial process down. And now they're wondering, well, let's make every trial like this. So for example, if you have a drug, say for Parkinson's disease, why not try three drugs at the same time? Maybe one is going to work, you know? And the trial is much quicker. It's cheaper because you're not measuring. At the moment, there's an obsession in trials to measure everything you can and loads of data that mightn't be that useful. If you have a simple, what's called an endpoint, it can be done much more straightforwardly, you know? And several drug companies now have spotted this and they're saying we have to reform the way we do clinical trials for the diseases that we're, we're trying to 
uh, test our new medicines against, you know. So again, that, that's an example of, of a radical change that might come in a way in the way clinical trials are run in a much simpler, more efficient way. In other words, COVID, it was like necessity is the mother of invention. It was an emergency. Let's simplify the clinical trial process down and then they find dexamethasone, you know. So that can be now deployed, that, that protocol, if you like, across multiple diseases. So there's big talk at the moment of much quicker, much cheaper trials. And it's great for patients because then we get the medicines more quickly, don't we, under the, under the marketplace, as it were, by simplifying the whole process. So again, we see that one as another key development. Mm. Uh, what about side effects? You know, okay, um, I don't die of COVID because I've taken this drug and I'm, I'm feeling fine uh, because the simple question is, does he die or does he not? Yeah. Um, but then like three weeks later, I develop a boil on my backside and that's down to the drug or whatever. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, no, that's an important one because that could be a numbers game because the more people you have on the trial, the more likely you'll see a side effect, say. But again, they've got ways of controlling that and, and getting the numbers such that you can reveal any any side effect. There'll be a minimum number of people probably needed you know, on a trial anyway, just to check for side effects. But again, that can be built into the thing. But that, that will be one issue that they'll be looking at as well. Now, some of the questions uh, that are coming in, uh, we talked last week about how we're probably coming towards the end of, of the pandemic. We hope so, that there won't be a, a new variant that will uh, screw everything up. Uh, so the questions, can you ask Luke about immunity in children who've had COVID? How long does it last in children? Uh, are our children under five going to experience multiple COVID infections throughout the year? And what are the dangers of those reinfections? Because yeah, we're told Omicron, you can have Omicron several times. That's a, good, that's a good one. Yeah, the, again, that's being measured at the moment. See, because it's so mild in children, it's been quite hard to study, if you know what I mean, because many mm. children might get infected. They've hardly any symptoms and they get over it quite quickly anyway, you know. So it is a mild, it's, it remains a very mild disease over. And obviously some children are badly affected, which we worry about, of course, you know. But because it's so mild, you may see repeat infections in children, but it won't be harmful. It's like having a cold every so often is, is one idea there, you know. But of course, the vaccine will probably be better in children than natural infection, because it kind of causes a more robust immune response. So vaccines may protect against repeat infections in children more than natural infection. But it's a great question because a child's, again, Pat, another thing we've learned from COVID, a child's immune system is very different to an adult's when you anyway, you know. It's really good at fighting COVID. You get this massive innate response in the child, you see, which is probably evolution to make sure the kids survive. But that's that's one that's being studied a lot is, is COVID in children and what might happen, basically. But we'll see what happens, I guess, once that research is, uh, is ongoing. Uh, Peter says, I got uh, through a dose of COVID in November. I went to see about getting my booster shot a few weeks back and I was told I'd have to wait six months until May to get mine. However, I've only recently heard that it's now down to three months. That is so. Uh, so I might be able to get mine next month. Can I ask Luke, is it true? Also, uh, can you get COVID a second time in a very short period soon after you were originally infected. So the idea is, uh, do you get even a fortnight? Well, yeah, <laughs> I know. The, the trouble is, of course, the trouble is, we now know you can get reinfected anyway, you know, and, but it's a yeah. milder disease because either the prior infection has woken up your immune system to protect you or the vaccine is protecting you, you know. And because these coronaviruses live in your nose and they're so contagious, you might pick up a bit of coronavirus and test positive, but it's not going to make you sick. It'll keep re reminding people of this, you know. That's the way, through evolution, the immune system was always designed to protect you see post-exposure. So getting reinfected isn't that big a concern for the vast majority you see. So it isn't something we should really worry about in truth. Mm. Uh, John wants to know and a number of people are asking this question what about the new Omicron variant that's now spreading across India, Denmark, the UK it's called Omicron BA2 yeah. 
Yeah, that's interesting that one, Pat, because that that that's a, like a sister, a sibling of um, of the of the Omicron, the first one, you know. But again, nothing to worry about at the moment. It is causing much milder sort of symptoms. And if anything, it might be more transmissible, which would be great because now it'll spread even more and then give some protection, you know. So that that's not one to worry about for the moment. Uh, Okay, Uh, we have talked many times on the programme about uh, the developing world and the shortage of uh, vaccines there. Uh, Do you detect any sense of urgency about getting huge swathes of unvaccinated people vaccinated so that these new variants don't suddenly emerge and with air travel, um, you know, it's a small world. Yeah, well, as, as ever, you know, once the news headlines begin to go, people lose interest in these things, don't they? Sadly, part of one level, you know, and, and we've had many infectious diseases in Africa that, where the vaccines weren't, you know, uh, distributed properly anyway, you know, so we're inclined to, we've got a very short memory, haven't we? But this is still there. And of course, you now the, the good news is COVAX announced, I think a week ago, a billion doses now they're distributing. Mm-hmm. And I just saw two days ago, they're getting 20 billion billion delivered to them in the coming months, you know. That's more than enough to vaccinate the world, you see. So it's kind of shifting more into logistics. Supply is not an issue. Now it's a question of getting the vaccine into these places that can be quite remote and poor health services and so on, you know. So now it's a logistical question and the, the, the true goal would be to eliminate COVID from the earth like we did with smallpox and polio has gone from Africa now. And you never know, there's 20 billion doses out there. They, if they're given out effectively, we could well see elimination of, of, of COVID. That's a dream, obviously, but, but that's where it has to head. We have to head in that direction really is the goal. All right, Luke, uh, fascinating stuff. Um, a final one. My daughter is seven, eight days post-positive COVID test, but still positive on antigen. Does Luke think seven days isolation is too short? When I phoned the HSE live, they said the child should have a negative antigen test before going back to school, um, which is not mentioned anywhere on the HSE website. What about that um, still testing positive on the antigen? It's just so variable. It's, we've, all, we've all got different immune systems and, and maybe that, sadly, there was a high dose of virus takes longer to clear, you know. So there's very, on average by day seven you should be cleared of it. But some might be eight, nine, ten days and some are even out to fourteen, you see. So, But the vast majority by day seven it's, it's cleared, you know, now you're free to go. You know. But sadly you've got to keep testing because if you're positive on the antigen you are infectious, you see. So you're, there's a risk yeah. of you spreading it. So you've got to be careful un- until eventually the so antigen test So no matter what you're doing if you're going to school or going to work or wherever you're thinking of post-infection get yourself a negative antigen yeah. before you return. Exactly. That's, that's, the, the, that's the message. And if you're lucky, you're, some, some are clear in four or five days if they've got a great immune yep. response. You know, Sadly, others take a bit longer. We'll just keep, just keep an eye on the antigen test is the message, really. Luke O'Neill, Professor of Biochemistry at Trinity College in Dublin. And thank you.